Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Lane Davis, and today I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Amy Voorhees. Dr. Voorhees is an independent scholar and the author of the new book, A New Christian Identity, Christian Science Origins and Experience in American Culture, published in 2021 by the University of North Carolina Press. In a review of the book, Publishers Weekly says that this book is a definitive look at Christian science and establishes its founder, Mary Baker Eddy, as a major figure in America's faith history. And after reading the book myself, I wholeheartedly agree with that endorsement. So with that, Dr. Voorhees, welcome to New Books in History. Thank you so much, Lane. So uh, we'll start with this. Your book was, is really the sweeping look at the origins of Christian science and its, its founding in the 19th century. But for listeners that uh, may not be as familiar with Christian science as a, as a religious movement, how would you describe the movement to someone who is maybe just picking up your book and reading about it for the first time? Well, I guess the first thing I would say is that it's not Scientology. <laughs> that might be like totally obvious to you and me as scholars of religion, but that is probably the biggest um, kind of misperception about Christian science today. They're totally, completely unrelated. Um, it is a, a an expression of Christianity that was founded in the 19th century by Mary Baker Eddy. And she described or defined Christian science as the law of God, the law of good. And she she founded the Christian Science Church, and I'll just quote here, to commemorate the word and works of our master, by whom she meant Christ Jesus, which should reinstate primitive Christianity and its lost element of healing, unquote. So the challenge for scholars has been to arrive at a way of describing Christian science in a historical sense that responds to Mary Baker's Eddy's definition of it, that responds to what William James identifies as both subjective and objective data points, information points about the religion from both within and without. Mm. And so there are have been a lot of ways that scholars have described Christian science over the years. But I found that 
um, I guess, and in fact, I just finished writing a, a blog post called why I wrote this book. <laughs> so maybe I'll, <laughs> maybe I'll just pull on that because Excellent. what I found is that um, scholars consistently use three words to describe Christian science. They use the word Christian, metaphysical, and healing. But, you know, if you just pause, I mean, as somebody who is comes, you know, you're uh, getting your PhD in religious studies right now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you, that's right. you know, you know, as I say those words, I'm sure you know right away, what do we mean by Christian? What do we mean by metaphys- metaphysical? What do we mean by healing? Mm-hmm. The variety of definitions that scholars apply to those terms is truly broad. Right. So what I found is that there was kind of a challenge there. Um, I really wrote this book to come up with an accurate way of describing Christian science in a historical and scholarly sense and to satisfy all of those data points, um, you know, of input about what Christian science is. And um, the definition that I arrive at draws on many of the definitions that scholars have used before, but hopefully takes a step forward in clarifying the meaning, kind of the terms within the terms. I call Christian science a singular expression of Christianity with a restorationist revelatory healing rationale. And really its central claim is to explain the divine law or Christian science that animated the healings of Jesus and that can be validated and proved in the modern era through a new system of applied Christian metaphysics, Mm. which is unlike the systems of metaphysics of Christian metaphysics that have a, that are revolve around philosophical discussions and wholly unlike um, other types of metaphysics that are involved in um, well we can talk about that later but are <laughs> involved in you know more uh, you know occult sort of types of things wholly apart from that and a new type of Christian metaphysics that is applied primarily so I really part of, pulled apart what all these terms mean in detail and looked at a bunch of primary sources from all over the board. And um, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, thank you, that's so helpful. So I I think the best place that maybe to kind of dive into the book then is to talk about the founder of of Christian Science, Mary Mary Baker Eddy. Uh, Maybe just give us a general sense of who she was um, and especially how she was formed by her childhood in 19th century New England. And, And there were a few sort of particular circumstances we could talk about, but maybe just a general sense of who she was first. Yeah, and do feel free to raise any circumstances that you you know feel sure. would be interesting for listeners. But we do have documents from that time period that tell us some basics. Um, we know that she lived in a New England farming community. She had two sisters and three brothers, so there were three three girls and three boys in her family. She was the youngest. We have records of her family's reading material, um, their church attendance. Their, the artifacts in their home. So we know that her family was pretty typical of their community. In my book, I call her family, quote, intellectual, but not erudite, comfortable, but not wealthy, civically engaged as a matter of course. Her father, Mark Baker, held like dozens of civic positions. I couldn't even fit them all in my book, but mm. which was typical, very typical of agrarian, um, you know, New England life at the time. Um we have a church record showing that she joined a Trinitarian congregational church in the 1830s. Her parents were members, but not her siblings, um, which was not, again, not uncommon. It was a big, big deal, as as you certainly know, you know to profess religion back then. Mm-hmm. You had to get grilled. You know, you had to be right. examined on the state of your soul. You had to be certain about it. So for her to take that step 
um, was a big deal. And for her siblings to not take that step was not uncommon. Um, we have records of uh, New Hampshire state historians who talk about the value of education. There's one of my favorites is, I think it was Nathaniel Boughton, who is this ubiquitous New Hampshire state historian. Um, there are a couple others, but um, who said education is the handmaid of religion. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, these were descendants of the dissenting Protestants that left England mostly and, and mm. uh, Scotland and so forth. They left there because they were being, you know, marginalized and persecuted. And they're, uh, for the most part, those are the folks who made up this farming community that Mary Baker already lived in. Um, and so they were really specific about, you know, these, our children need to be educated and we are here so that we have the freedom to educate our children. Um, girls as well as boys were expected to be able to read the Bible directly, to contemplate the state of their souls, to write lengthy journal entries about, about, you know, all this. So we have her school books too. We know that she took notes on Byron, Wordsworth and Shakespeare, and she had like basic Latin, um, from a really good Latin teacher um, who there's lots of records about people saying what a great Latin teacher he was. She had a smattering of Latin. Mm -hmm. um, she was tutored by her pastors and by her brother who went to Dartmouth. Um, she had a, it, it kind of in general, she had a, a fairly typical learning profile for a new England girl of her time. Um, it interrupted quite a bit by ill health. Right. And, and the, I think the health is an interesting kind of point to, to focus in here because illness and health were, particularly formative, you note. Uh, and she developed a relationship with a, a curious named Phineas Quimby. I, I was vaguely familiar with Quimby before reading your book, but uh, the, the interaction that you talk about between her and, and Quimby uh, was really influential for, for her life and for how her work developed. Could you maybe talk about who Phineas Quimby is and, and just the importance of his uh, relationship with Mary Baker? Mm -hmm, yeah. Um, he was the last of uh, kind of a series of what at the time they would have called irregular curists, um, which were they were irregular in the sense of a lot of a lot of people were exploring different types of. Um, I have to be careful with my words here because we tend to overlay kind of a 20th century understanding of these right. things and say, oh, they're like alternative you know, therapies or whatever, they really were not conceptualized that way. In fact, <laughs> what I found really unexpectedly, this is when I was at the New Hampshire Historical Society and the, the main historical society. And I was reading through a lot of the periodicals from that time. And what I found was that a lot of these cures were conceptualized as possibly a new iteration of gospel healing. Huh. You know, is God acting through the water cure? Is God acting in some way through homeopathy. Um, there's this really interesting sermon that I found, which is quoted in my book. Um, you can find it there, but he, he talks about um, disease as a stubborn conviction, sort of a stubborn mood that affects the internal organs. Mm. And the only thing that can save us from that is um, Christian salvation, basically, you know, mm. um, there's a lot of stuff about this, but nobody there are a lot of theories about um, how this gospel healing might be operating through these curative systems, but there was no distinctive um, consensus by any means about really what the mechanism was or what it meant or if it actually was happening, you know? Right. So she was 
involved in exploring all of this. And she was, you know, a congregationalist. She became more and more of a radical congregationalist as the years went on. She spent about 20 years exploring different types of cures. And um, to answer your question, <laughs> direct more, you know, to get to the part about Quimby. So he was the last in this kind of 20 year period, uh, the last guy that she went to as a, a curist. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, she really was, I, I think today we would describe him as, oh gosh, I mean, again, it's so hard not to overlay today's terms and kind of look backwards and kind of plop them onto 19th century experiences. So I guess I'll, and I really sought to do this in the book to look at how people described these things then, not to make judgments about how I might describe them now. Nobody knew what he was doing, really. Um, He was, you know, there's a a big question mark in the 1840s, 1850s about um, the, the role of electricity in healing because electricity was just this was like this um, new thing. Was it a new element? Was it a new, mm-hmm. you know, uh, phenomenon of some kind? And did God act through electricity? You know, in fact, I just picked up a copy of um, Brett Granger's book. I don't know if you've read it, The Church in the Wild. Uh, I have not. I've seen it, but uh, yes, go, go yes. ahead. Yeah. He talks about in that, it's a really interesting book. He talks about this theology of electricity that mm-hmm. evangelical Protestants had where they were theorizing and questioning does God act through this new element, this new thing, this new phenomena in some way to cure, to, to heal. Um, and of course, then there's the whole spiritualism thing that came in and squashed that conversation in the 18, by the 1860s, it was moving in a different direction. But when Mary Baker Eddy was exploring these, these different curative systems and looking for what's the gospel element in these cures, um, that was, was how she, certainly would have been culturally predisposed to see Quimby as somebody who was leveraging some kind of divine something or other, you know? Mm, Right. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's super helpful. So one of the experiences that I know is really important for her happens in 1866. Uh, She falls on the ice there, interestingly, there's not uh, just a ton of documentation, it seems, around that experience, uh, but the the experience and then the effects of it seem incredibly profound for her life. Can, can you tell us what you found about that particular event and sort of what it means for the beginnings of Christian science? Yeah, well, I will say that um, there's just not a lot of primary source documentation. Right. So I was really cautious in how I described that because I wanted to stick to the documents that we have from that time period. There's one that I'll read. This is the weekly reporter from Lynn, Massachusetts, that in 1866 announced that, quote, um, she had, quote, fallen, she fell upon the ice near the corner of Market and Oxford Streets on Thursday evening and was severely injured. She was taken up in an insensible condition and carried into the residence of S.M. Bouvier Esquire nearby, where she was kindly cared for during the night. Dr. Cushing, who was called for, found her injuries to be internal and of a severe nature, inducing spasms and internal suffering. She was removed to her home in Swampskit yesterday, which is a nearby town, um, though in very critical condition, unquote. So aside from that, we know that the minister, her minister was called for, which means that people expected her to die. And we know that um, she was really out of commission for a couple of days. And then three days later, she 
recalled later asking for her Bible and, and came out of her room and was walking and that everyone there considered it miraculous and couldn't explain it. Importantly, she couldn't really explain it either at the time. And, Hmm. you know, for most of 1866, she was really kind of going back and forth about what just happened. Like it was, um, obvious that there was some kind of new something or other going on in her life. But um, by the end of 1866, she seems to have settled on an understanding of this experience that was, she was able to parlay into a new religious expression. So your book is not just a biography of of Mary Baker Eddy. You've also done a lot of deep textual work on her writings. um, And it it includes some of her early work, like the Genesis manuscript. Can you talk about that early writing? And and what were some of the ideological and intellectual problems that she was trying to work through as she had this experience in 1866 and and now she was beginning this this new movement and it was beginning to, to develop? How are the ideas developing along with that? Yeah, well, um, I would say I don't need, that that it was not particularly known as a new movement at that time. It was very, very small. Um, and but she was writing this manuscript. That was the primary thing that she was doing, and she titled it "The Bible and Its Spiritual Meaning." Hmm. So she w- was setting out to explain the Bible hmm. in light of this new experience that she had had. And I think of that manuscript, I think of that document as an embodiment of this curative, this healing experience that she had had in 1866. She doesn't talk about that experience a lot, but Mm. she embodied it in this manuscript. For one thing, she wouldn't have been able to write the manuscript without having had that experience because in late 1865, she was not able to work. She had written that you know she was ill again her her health had been fluctuating quite a bit over the the past couple of years in the early 1860s she was sometimes a lot better sometimes she was really way worse and she kind of goes into her symptoms a lot and she says at one point i'm just not able to to work you know mm-hmm. she wrote to her brother-in-law i'm sorry to afflict you with the afflicted <laughs> you know right. but i i need a fire i need a room with a fire because i i can't you know get fully dressed every day and my, my side is so bad, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, so she's unable to go through the laborious process of 19th century dressing, you know, in all these layers, right. you know, which is not inconsiderable, you know, <laughs> and, you know, 50 billion buttons and, you know, 16 layers and so forth. And she couldn't go through that process and she couldn't sit at a writing desk all day and, and work. Um, she also had a problem with, with poverty. You know, her husband had had, uh, was having issues and, uh, so forth. And so anyway, um, the fact that she was just able to sit and write was a major new development in the late 1860s. Hmm. I see this Genesis manuscript that she started to produce then and spent a couple of years writing in the late 1860s as an embodiment of her experience in 1866 And she's working through questions of how did that experience of that I'm identifying as a healing experience, how did that relate to earlier um, explorations of cure that I had looked into that didn't pan out for me? Mm -hmm. Um, How did it, how, how did, does that experience relate to um, Quimby? She still had major questions, you know, is this kind of the same thing 
but it was, you know, like he's not around anymore. He had passed on before she had that experience that, that, that healing experience, but um, you know, how does it relate? So she's working through and kind of grappling with those questions. She's asking questions about the nature of um, the biblical record about um, inspiration, Hmm. revelation, explanation. How do I explain the Bible? What does revelation mean to have God disclose himself to you in an experience, to to disclose the nature of of creation and creation's relationship with a loving God? How do I explain that? I see all her grappling with all those things in that manuscript. That's really interesting. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So the most famous text in Christian science, uh, of course, is, is uh, Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures. Um, mm-hmm. And here's how you, d- you describe it, and I'm quoting, uh, then there was the core radicalism in Eddie's book, the claim that she and others had proved her Christian metaphysics by healing not only sin, but disease, and her readers could too, end quote. Um, Talk about this text uh, a bit and and that core radicalism, as you call it. And and I I guess it would be also interesting just to kind of start maybe by talking about what kind of text it is, because you note there's been some (laughs) misunderstanding about that um, from historians and from adherents uh, equally. So, yeah, just just talk a bit about that text if you can. Okay. well, um, and and redirect me as I talk if you want to kind of jump in. Before I answer that, I'll just go to. 1872, which is before she she published her book in 1875. Mm-hmm. And it really is the outcome of an experiences that she had in 1872 that, that um, you know, if the Genesis manuscript that she wrote in the late 1860s was the outcome of her 1866 healing experience, if it was the embodiment of that, which is kind of how I see it, then science and health really was the outcome of experiences that she had since 1866 and was enabled primarily by experiences she had in 1872 that finally caused her to answer all of those questions she had about how does this new thing, whatever it is, however I I might describe it, how does this new thing relate to my previous experiences? Mm -hmm. And she, in that year, decided that her experiences with Quimby had been based on mesmerism. They weren't Christian healing. She thought that they were. She was hoping that they were. But it really explained to her why under his care, her health had fluctuated so much and why there was never like a, a end point and a lot of questions, which I go into in detail in my book. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and I, I should say too, that I really work in my book to be really generous and 
respectful of both Quimby and Eddie because the historiography is just so kind of all over the board with that. And I, I just right. didn't want to have a part of that. Sure, but, sure. You know, um, but having made that decision really clearly that Christian science is totally unrelated to the mesmeric tradition, um, which she had assumed all the time, but making, but, you know, every new tradition, every new religion in this time period was accused of being mesmerism by this point. Right. You find this in all these documents. Faith healers were called mesmerists. Uh, Mormons were called mesmerists. Protestants called Roman Catholics mesmerists, you know, it's like all over the place. So it's not unusual that she would be called that. And everyone had to sort through um, all these different traditions had to sort through what that meant for them. She did sort through that and really established her teachings um, very self-consciously against the mesmeric tradition, which is important. And um, so when you talk about what is science and health, well, it's um, a description of, of um, biblical interpretation, how, mm-hmm. how she came to understand the Bible in light of this revelatory discovery, you know, that she had had. Um, and well, so it's, so I guess it's not scripture though, because that's a uh, misinterpretation right. that I still run into quite a bit with people who don't understand anything about Christian science. And that's, right. that's, a, that's a key, key point of contention, right? That's a really good, that's a really good point. Yes. And I do talk about that. Yeah. There's actually a pretty good scholarly record. I, I know um, I quote some scholars who say very clearly, science and health is not a scripture, um, because it really isn't. You're right. It's it's um, a, a sacred text. We could call it that. But mm-hmm. to Christian scientists and to Mary Baker Eddy, the Bible is the only scripture. And this uh, science and health is a key to the scriptures. That's a subtitle. Science and health is key right. to the scriptures. Yeah, so. yeah. Yeah. So, so Christian science adherents, they eventually feel that they have to start their own church. What led to this? Well, Mary Baker Eddy was not like a come outer sort of like um, Joseph Smith or like Ellen Harmon White, who really felt called to leave the established church, um, sometimes with kind of spicy words about it, you know, mm-hmm. um, and they, they had a vision for something totally different that they felt was more sacred. Um, she was not like that. She remained a congregational church member very um, happily through the 1870s, through, through the middle 1870s, even while she was writing her book. And she expected her church um, to accept her book. Mm. She really engaged in her book a lot of key questions that congregationalists were asking then. And I, I, cite a lot of this source material, but you know, there's like, does matter exist? I mean, that, you know, like <laughs> what, what do we think of Darwinism? Is that, does that mean that God is, is, you know, under material laws and not vice versa? Um, you know, uh, metaphysical questions, right. Um, what, what is reality reality? What's, what is the reality of the universe and how do I describe it? Um, key, the key question of how did Jesus heal mm. and can I heal in the same way? What is the atonement? You know, um, what is what is prayer? How do I think about prayer? How do I practice prayer in an effective way in this time period when religion is being turned on its head and it no longer has the authority that it used to have in in cultural terms? Um, so she's really engaging all of those questions um, and answering them in science and health. And 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 these this was re- these questions weren't sort of 
accepted by the Congregationalists of the day. <laughs> they were they were very much uh, sort of pushed outside. I'm, I'm guessing because of these questions. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the congregational church did not accept them and say, oh, this is now the new direction that we're going in, mm-hmm. you know, but the parting with her parting with the congregational church was, was mutually warm. There was never like a big rift or anything. Um, they recommended her to, I think, quote, any evangelical church, you know, that's what her, her mm-hmm. letter says, you know, she's right. a member in good standing. Um, and she very self-consciously, you know, she called her church the most evangelical church. You know, hmm. she she identified it that way. Right. I, I, I was especially interested in how you talked about some of the interactions of uh, the Christian Science uh, Church to many of the people who are outside of the movement, both mm-hmm. both in the Christian church, but also in other religious movements at the time. And you, you talk about some of the interactions that Christian science had with the uh, theosophy movement. That was especially interesting. Can, can you talk some about that? Yeah, that was very interesting to me to dive into. Um, during the 1880s, there were, Christian science was growing quite a bit. And there were a lot of Christians who were attracted to the innovative, I, I always try and use kind of positive words to describe rather than like, if you say unorthodox, so it's kind of saying what it is, right. you know, so I try right. to say singular, not that it's okay. You know, maybe, it, you know, so anyway, <laughs> very contested terms. Absolutely. Right, <laughs> go, right. go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And I try and do that with all new religious expressions of new, right. new types of Christianity. You know, I, it's, I, I try and apply those that to, to, to everybody. So um, they, many Christians were attracted to the unorthodox or innovative theological statements and the mm-hmm. healing experiences primarily that they saw in Christian science. And I talk about this guy, O.P. Gifford. He was a Baptist minister, really like super well-known Baptist minister right. who really championed Christian science throughout his entire career. He was not like super uncommon, you know, to, to have that type of response from within the Christian, the established Christian church. There were also folks who really objected to it and said, oh, this is the worst thing that has ever happened and it's leading the faithful astray. And I include lots of examples of those types of folks. Then you have the theosophical movement, which which started to burgeon also in the 1880s. And so folks who were theosophical or theosophically adjacent sort of interested in it, they became attracted to Christian science because of these unorthodox statements. <clears throat> For example, um, Mary Baker Eddy totally reconsiders the fall of, of, you know, Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. She calls, which a lot of, a lot of people were doing then. She wasn't the only one, but she, it, she did it in a unique way. She calls Eve not innocent, but first to confess her fault. So mm-hmm. she said Eve was morally strong and she did the wrong thing. And she said so immediately. And that made her um, more spiritually minded and, mm-hmm. You know, so she called God, Mary Baker, he called God, father, mother, which, of course, if we look into the, you know, the sources, we find a lot of people doing that. But nobody did it to the degree that she did. And it became such an established kind of Christian science term that it became associated with her movement primarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and so theosophists, theosophists. <laughs> <laughs> The theosophically minded folks um, became interested in these aspects, these unorthodox or innovative aspects of Christian science theology and really dove into it, but they didn't want to leave behind their theosophical commitments. 
And this became a major, major conflict um, where they would intensely affiliate with Christian science for a time. I I found one letter in which a a woman called herself um, an inquirer into Christian science. She read Science and Health. She was eclectic. She liked all the scriptures, all the world scriptures, you know. Mm -hmm. And she wrote to Mary Baker Eddy saying, um, her name was uh, Diaz, Abby Morton Diaz. And she wrote to Mary Baker Eddy saying, um, you know, you might disagree with how I see your religion, but I think that it's it's unfairly persecuted. People aren't saying the right things about it. Um, and Mrs. Eddy, as she was called, wrote back to Mrs. Diaz and said, um, you know, I, I don't entirely, she, she didn't entirely agree. You know, you're right. But she was very respectful and said, you know, um, if you'd like to come study with me and so forth. Um, you can. And uh, Abby Diaz declined and she went her own way. And but there were a lot of kind of interactions like this in the 1880s hmm. um, where theosophists and those who had like an a, a interest in eclectic literature and eclectic religious viewpoints, they got into Christian science and they found that they couldn't accept the the exclusive Christian aspects of it, the basic Christianity of it, they really disagreed that Mary Baker Eddy um, should be considered the founder of Christian science. Um, you know, she just kind of happened to be there. Huh. <laughs> right? Yeah, really interesting. Yeah. Okay. So I was also interested in some of the legal issues that the church faced uh, early in its origins. Um, and that's just something I'm kind of always interested in is just how uh, how churches and religious movements define themselves over and against uh, so the way that societies and try to do so through laws. So uh, just for legal purposes, uh, you know, what were some of the struggles that the, the uh, church was going through during uh, so this early period of its, of its growth? Well, I know there's, there's a really interesting article that David Holland wrote. This is an anthology put out by David Hempton was one of the editors mm-hmm. about how some of the court cases um, le- levied against Mary Baker Eddy. There were two major court cases against her as an individual um, really for um, well, very interesting reasons that I get into in the book. And then a lot of biographers and, and uh, other scholars have already covered quite a bit. One was called the next friend suit. And that's the one that David Holland talks about in terms of, um, how definitions of religion were impacted by the findings in that suit. But probably what you might be talking about a little bit more is that I spend a little bit of time in my book talking about a handful of court cases that popped up around 1900 that uh, where legislatures around the country, state legislatures, sought to limit Christian science practice on the basis of licensing. Mm. So... Uh, um, Scholars have established that these cases did revolve mostly around licensing, meaning whether or not the practitioner held a mainstream or standardized medical license, which, of course, most didn't. And there's also a fair amount of scholarship that explores the larger cultural push at this time toward establishing mainstream medical options for treatment as primary. And so you find these well-established systems like homeopathy and so forth increasingly and systematically marginalized by that push. But in the case of Christian science, the conversation was rather different because of the entirely religious nature and identity of the practice. There's no physical accompaniment to prayer that can be mm-hmm. licensed in a traditional sense. Right. So the conversation often became 
explicitly religious. And I found that there was kind of this, this uh, you know, these people don't have a right to practice the system of healing. Their theology is not my theology. I don't get it. Religious healing is outright impossible. So it cannot exist, even though it might appear to, it cannot. Mm. And then you have the recorded court testimony of Christian scientists in response, some of which was um, kind of immature and sort of self-righteous, some of which was very even-toned, very mature, and laid out thoughtful reasons that religious healing can and does exist. And um, I found that the question of efficacy, I really, this was a big surprise to me. I thought that these cases would revolve around efficacy. And even though scholars tend not to engage in that question, because it's not really a historical question in, in some basic ways, this mm-hmm. I lay out in my book why that is and cite all the literature and so forth. But I did observe the conversation and I found three types of discussions around efficacy that often aren't accounted for in the admittedly small grouping of academic literature on this topic. One is that sometimes the patient was happy with their treatment mm-hmm. and efficacy was presumed. So the patient was fine. They, they were happy with everything. And the case literally and entirely rested on medical licensing without any discussion of efficacy at all. Hmm. Sometimes courts ruled that efficacy wasn't theirs to decide. In one 1889 Ohio case, the appeals court ruled that, quote, what efficacy there may be in treating bodily ills through means, such as prayer, the court is not called upon to decide, unquote. And the judgment granted, quote, perfect sincerity to a now considerable number of highly respectable persons, unquote, employing Christian science, et cetera. And they found it impossible to rule that this healing practice was medical in nature, as it didn't involve medicines, medical training, or uh, medical or physical diagnoses. And their decision was, therefore, that it's clearly a, a religious belief, they called it, quote, unquote, this is a type of religious belief. And the court further commented that it does not punish those of other sects who sought healing and seek healing through contact with, for example, holy relics and, you know, other types of religious healing so that, quote, if it applies to one class, it must also apply to the other. I didn't expect that kind of conversation. I was like surprised by by this. Um, In that particular case, the Christian scientist had accepted a modest donation for the to treat the patient. Um, and most state licensing laws required a billing transaction to establish professional activity as opposed to a charity. So because in this case, it was a charity, it was a donation instead of a bill, um, the case was resolved on, on mm. that basis and on, on these other um, factors that I, I quoted. Finally, um, there I think in other cases, people struggle to say why Christian scientists should be persecuted for their failures when medical doctors were not. And they struggled to find evidence that these failures were greater in number or in value than medical failures. Um, another, I, I know I've mentioned this before, maybe it was in a conversation that we ha- that's not in this recording, but <laughs> um, one of my book's unexpected research findings is that even Mary Baker and his severest critics from the 1870s onward routinely accepted evidence that her religion healed. They would say, yes, there are healings that go on here, but they proposed that this was because of religious, medical, or philosophically fraudulent reasons. It's not the right theology. It's not medically allowed. It's not philosophically rational. And then you have these voices like this guy I quote in the book who you will, you'll know about, William Lloyd Garrison III. He's mm-hmm. the grandson of the 
famous abolitionist. Mm-hmm. And he testified to a state legislature that he didn't understand Christian science theology. He didn't agree with what he called its, quote, biblical dogmas. He was a medical man himself. Um, he, but he also didn't agree that it should draw special scrutiny based on its unorthodox approach to healing. Um, he said that from his own enforced observation is how he termed it, that he saw cases of physical and moral regeneration through its practice that led him to feel, quote, whatever the cause of this phenomenal and widespread change, it seems to me a blessing to the world, unquote. I really didn't expect to find voices of this stature like that in the historical record or this variety that I just cited. Well, all of this has been really interesting, um, and and I really appreciate your time today. But before we finish, I do want to spend just a little bit of time talking about the argument that frames your book, because it is a, a really nuanced thesis that I think deserves a lot of thoughtful attention. Um, so in the beginning of the book, you argue, as early Christian science adherents engaged the Bible as interpreted by Mary Baker Eddy's Science and Health with the key to the scriptures, they forged a new Christian identity, and this religious identity mediated modernity in distinctive ways, not least through experiences deemed healing, understood not as ends in themselves, but as way as waymarks, pointing to something Christians by definition consider more important, salvation or the redemption of human life based on a new view of God and Jesus Christ. So with this argument, I guess the question is, what what was this identity like? What would it have been like to have been a Christian scientist in the in the 1890s? Someone who is a Christian scientist in the 1890s would have almost invariably come to it through a healing experience. They would have had an account of healing that was central to their religious experience that they that that brought them into this church. It would have been a kind of a a scrappy time. That's a word that comes to thought. It's a very young organization uh, at that time, mm-hmm. kind of heady. You know, the organization was growing faster than any other church or, or religion in America then. Mm. Based on cultural conversations around Christian science, um, it would be a time where you're sifting through and establishing outside perceptions of what your religion is and establishing what Christian science identity is to you. Um, it would be a time of really um, working to understand Mary Baker Eddy as a religious founder. Um, in my book, there are a lot of private artifacts and portraits that I reprint and, and talk about that give us glimpses into adherent spirituality, where Christian sciences, Christian scientists are handling their religious books and filling them with marginal notations. And um, several of them went through science and health with key to the scriptures and notated Bible passages on like every page. Of of course, it includes over 700 Bible, you know, it's a, it's a Bible based text, right? Right. So um, there, but they went through and they compared it with their Bibles and studied the two together. We have these portraits of people holding their religious texts, their scriptures, and their science and health with key to the scriptures, holding them together with affection. Um, it was just a time of phenomenal growth. Um, and you could have come from any religious, racial, ethnic, or economic background. There was a lot more diversity in the the membership than is often presupposed. Mm. Um, and I do try and really sketch out some of that and bring a voice to some of the, that uh, diversity in my book as well. 
Well, it is really interesting. Amy Voorhees is the author of A New Christian Identity, Christian Science Origins and Experience in American Culture, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2021. Dr. Voorhees, it has been a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much for the time and thank you for bearing with our technical difficulties that your listeners hopefully will not know anything about. But congratulations on the book and thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. Thank you so much, Lane. And thank you for listening to New Books in History. Make sure to check out the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com or anywhere that you can stream and download podcasts and make sure to subscribe to our history channel so that you can uh, keep up with all of the best in new scholarship and writing that is out there right now. Thanks so much and enjoy your reading. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.